Heavenly Father, thank you for that prayer that you would show us Christ, that we would see him in a greater way as a result of our time in your word. That would be our great passion and our great delight. Thank you again for the opportunity to gather and worship you and to lift you up, not just with our voices, but with our very lives, offering you as living sacrifices, saying, all of us is for all of you. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated and uh, thankful uh, to be here with you. Uh, My name is Chris. I've been here before. Uh, I uh, love your pastor, and I love your church. Uh, You are a delight. Uh, You have one of the greatest exegetes in the world today. That is not an overstatement. Uh, He is amazingly gifted, and uh, you are blessed to have him. And uh, it's my job, my my great uh, plan to try to keep him here as much as possible. He'll be sought elsewhere. Do you follow what I'm saying? He's that good. And so don't don't panic. I have no agenda. Some of you are looking at me like, this is scary. No, no, no. He's a great guy, and uh, I just want to make sure that he stays. I've been at 17 years in my uh, pulpit in Southern California, and uh, it's a delight to uh, just uh, be with you occasionally. And uh, I uh, have had John as well sh- uh, be in my pulpit, and uh, we're just uh, uh, just have a sweet friendship and a common ministry. So I I read one sarcastic, funny article. I wanted to make sure that you knew what it said and what it asked, because it asked, uh, how do you know you're a woman? Isn't that a great question for today? How do you know you're a woman? Well, here's what they offered up sarcastically. You're always cold, right? Is that true? Uh, a human being has popped out of you. That, that could be a good sign. Uh, you have six pillows on your couch. Is that, uh, is that too much? That's supposed to be funny. Um, you can tell the difference between rustic coffee white and farmhouse white at an instant, at a glance. Most guys would say, what? It's white, all right? Well, I better stop. Uh, put yourself in my place, and you'll know why Paul said, I was with you with fear and trembling, uh, because today I'm going to be opening up God's Word as it relates to the God's design for women. Now, the last time I was here, I did God's design for men right out of Titus chapter 2, and in God's providence... Uh, was nothing of my doing. Uh, I had actually taught a series on Titus 2 to about 800 collegians a long time ago when dinosaurs still roamed the earth and the earth crust had not yet hardened. Uh, It was in uh, California, and uh, it was really a life-changing series for those collegians as to actually helping them to understand the role and design of God for men and the role of design of God for women. And One of those collegians became a publisher and was battling with his own son, helping him become a man and helping his daughters become women. And so he approached me about three years ago and said, would you actually write on this and take this series that you did so long ago and put it into two books? Well, they are Let the Men Be Men and Let the Women Be Women. So last time I was with you was Let the Men Be Men. And John, this is his fault not mine, said, today, why don't you discuss and open up God's Word on let the women be women. So you're ready for that? Open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to walk through this together uh, because everybody's got an opinion today, right? It's crazy, uh, but the world of high fashion, the women's movement, the lesbian movement, today's gender confusion, the secular view of marriage, uh, marriage failure, all today have made God's design for women to be very confusing. And yet the Bible's very clear. God made men and God made women, male and female, and he made them in his image. 
So it's basically reflecting him. This was not an accident. And we only have two genders today, uh, even though there's a lot of confusion out there. There is only two that come right out of the Scripture, and we're going to look at one of them today. And it's not an accident because some years back, even though there's a lot of resistance to this instruction, eminent theologian, contemporary scholar, and sociological expert, Cindy Lauper, uh, the orange-headed rock singer, said that in an interview, the three biggest oppressors of women are, one, the government, two, uh, the family, and three, the church. Unknowingly, she shows whose side she's on because she picks on uh, basically criticizing all of God's uh, three ordained institutions. But as Christians, when you are born again, God has given you a hunger for His Word. You desire to obey His Word. It's not something that you do, but God has actually put in you, Romans 6, 17. And you realize that the role of women is not merely a cultural or political or a sociological or even a sexist issue. It's a biblical issue. I'm not a chauvinist or a feminist. I'm a biblicist. So I want to give you what the Bible has to say. It's God who made male and God who made female. And understand His design is the whole program. I mean, He did it all. And each sex is unique and each sex has a role to play. And He designed them both. So it's essential that you see what God has designed for each role, men and women. Uh, it's really now absolutely essential, and you're going to see this from the text here, that you would actually be discipling your children in this. It's not something they're going to automatically pick up from our culture anymore, right? So it's something that we have to not only instruct, but we need to model for them. And so understand, if you don't, then you'll find yourself confused and competing instead of convinced and complimentary. Kind of like the little girl who asked her daddy, did God make you daddy? And he said, well, of course. And then she looked in the mirror at herself and she said, well, did, did God make me? And he said, well, of course, dear. And then after a little thought, she said, well, God seems to be doing better work lately. Don't you agree? Um, understand that it's really not easy to speak on this issue. And, and really, it's not easy to be a woman today, especially with all the pressures coming on from culture and every other circumstance. Uh, in a biblical relationship, you know, if you're wanting to have actually something that might lead to marriage as a young person and be married to an authentic man of Christ, I mean, think about the single right now. If she waits, she could be labeled as indifferent. Uh, if she gets a low-paying uh, part-time job to wait for her man to show up in two years, if she ha he hasn't checked in, she's going to be really poor and uh, also hating her job. If she pursues a career, she'll have to give it up once she starts having kids. Uh, if she prepares for homemaking, she, uh, by reading all the wife and mother books, she's going to get frustrated by no application. Uh, she's going to seek to be content with her singleness. It's not going to stop her friends from asking her five days a week when she's going to get married. And if she pursues ministry, she might become so spiritual she'll intimidate all the men around her or she'll be out of circulation and never meet anyone. So it's really tough to be a gal. It's tough to be a woman today in this particular climate. And so for the answer as to what a woman's supposed to do, I want you to look at this particular text. Now, the book of Titus was written by Paul to Titus after his first imprisonment. And Paul left Titus on the island of Crete to set things in order. And what he does in the very first chapter is he basically says, I need you to appoint elders. I need you to watch out for false elders and false teachers, etc. And he's establishing this. 
But what he does in setting things in order was to instruct the various groups of the church as to God's design for them and what they should be pursuing. So he talks about older men and older women, and then he talks about younger women, and then he talks about younger men. And we're going to look at that section that talks about younger women, and I want you to see it. What he's done is to give you the essential qualities of a godly woman. Now, this is for all ages, not just for young women, and it's for men to hear and understand the role of the woman as well as for women and other means to understand the role of men. But here we go. Take a look at read verses Titus 2, verses 4 and 5, and it says that the older women are to train the younger women that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, to be pure, to be workers at home, to be kind, to be subject to their own husbands, that the Word of God may not be dishonored. Now, the, the main issue that Titus is battling with on Crete is that they're having a hard time putting their beliefs into behavior, right? That's a real dilemma for us Christians in general. It was really, really rough on Crete. And so he's working hard to help them to live out their faith because faith without works is dead. It should be altering the way that they behave. The Cretans had a problem with putting their beliefs into behavior. So Paul describes seven essentials here of the young godly woman that are a part of her lifestyle. For you single women... Uh, these are the qualities that you're to begin to live in order to manifest uh, what God designed for you and to prepare for you what is ahead for most of you. If you're married, this is what you're living. If you're older, this is what you're modeling. If you're young and, and yet to be married, uh, then this is a, a target for you. But for all of us, this is a target. It's a process. It's not something that you arrive at. It's not something you can walk away today going, okay, got it down. It's going to be something that requires mentoring. Did you see that in verse 4? The older women are to what? Train the younger women. This is something that you just go, you know, check off a list here. It's something that is mentored and discipled. It's to be modeled and lived and pursued. And, and for you single men, this is for you, for the women to look for. Uh, it's really not for you to be guilty or to regret, but for you to pursue because we not have yet arrived in heaven. And so here they are. I'm going to list them for you, then we'll go through each one of them one by one. Maritally, she's to love her husband. Maternally, she's to love her children. Uh, mentally, she's to be sensible. Morally, she's to be pure. Domestically, she's to be a worker at home. Socially, she's to be kind. Spiritually, she's to be subject to her own husband. Again, this is just a brief overview. These require a lot of in-depth study, and I would commend that to you to pursue this even beyond today. But number one in your outline, maritally, she's to love her husband. Maritally, she's to love her husband. Now, when Paul says to Titus, he, he knows on Crete that there are basically two kinds of marriages. There are marriages that are arranged uh, basically for political reasons, and family issues, businesses, etc. And during the first century, a lot different than today, there are marriages that are arranged for the procreation of male offspring. Now, neither of them had any to do with love or romance. And in light of that culture, an exhortation for a Christian woman to love her husband is quite a challenge. But Paul takes it a step further here. You don't really see it, obviously, in the text, but it's quite an exhortation and not an easy task because not only is the first duty of a Christian woman to love her husband, but her love is more than just duty. 
it's more than just sacrifice. It involves your entire life. The Greek word for loving husbands is not agape. Agape would be that uh, type of love which is totally unselfish, giving of yourself whether you feel like it or not. That's not the word that's here. The word that's here is phileo, which is the love of friendship, the love of comradeship, the love of relationship and sharing. It's as if Paul is saying, I want you to disciple these young women so that their husbands would be their best friend. Uh, it's a, it's a, the goal of friendship here and relationship for the young woman is her love for her husband is more than just doing what's required here. It's that she cherishes and is friends with her husband. Now, that was not an easy task in Titus Day, and it's definitely not a, an easy task for today as well. I mean, how many truly happy couples do you know? And possibly in our, the church here, you, you know several but typically in the world today, we don't see a lot of overtly happy couples. And what are some ways that a young woman can love her future husband now? It's just speaking to the single. Be that kind of gal who develops a godly reputation. I'm giving you some hints here. First uh, Timothy 5.10, widows were to have a reputation for good deeds. Uh, Proverbs 31.31, 31, her works were to praise her in the gates. She is known. Uh, I, I heard about my wife before I met her. I don't know if you, you know, you probably didn't know that. I heard that she was godly and gifted and super cute and a servant. And I heard all those things. But honestly, I heard men like John MacArthur and other people, they'd talk about Betsy and, you know, Frida and all these other names. And then they talk about Jean. They go, Jean. I'm like, whoa, what is that? That kind of piqued the interest of a young, you know, Christian man. And I was like, oh, who, what's this all about? Uh, because she had a reputation of ministry and, and loving people and serving. Uh, Boaz knew about Ruth before he even met her, right? So there's an element of a godly reputation that's really something that you can be established, being known for your pursuit of the Lord. Be the kind of gal that has a biblical lens towards young men. Uh, I'm not saying play hard to get, but uh, don't be the gal who falls for the first guy who pays attention to you. Uh, you know, don't partner off with a guy that you can't or shouldn't marry. Uh, if he's not a believer or not sound in doctrine or, and I love to say this, write this down, not proven, not proven. Proven is faithfulness to Christ and his word over time. That's what it means, proven, meaning faithful in ministry, faithful to a local church, uh, accountable to older men, lives a life of spirit-filled self-control, is a servant. The greatest among you will be your what? Servant. So don't date a guy just because he's got puppy dog eyes, you know, wears a blue jean coat. It has the same name as your favorite childhood toy, you know. His name is Tonka, <clears throat> or worse, Barbie. Um, college gals used to tell me all the time as a college pastor, he's got to be 6'2", blonde hair, and drive a Porsche. And I was there long enough to see what they ended up with, 5'1", bald, and drives a scooter. You know, it's just <laughs> make certain that he's proven. That, that, that's the man that's easy to like as a husband. You know, what often bothers me is Paul's reminding Titus here to be motivating the older women to train the younger women to like their husbands. That always raises a question to me. What is it about men that requires an older godly woman to train the younger wife to like them? Wow. Don't believe the lie, and the lie of the Christian single is this, that when you walk down the aisle and you say, I do, you automatically become the perfect wife. It's going to take time. 
you got to get ready now as a single. And even when married, this verse tells you wives that you need the discipleship of an older godly woman. And, and really, the plural is older godly women. Uh, Navigators has taught us it's one-on-one, but actually the Scripture talks a little bit more about the influence of multiple women in our lives and multiple men in our lives influencing us with intentional relationships to help us become what God intended us to become. It's called discipleship, and it's part of what we do as Christians. It's that influence. Build relationship with older godly saints. Singles, get adopted by that biblically solid older couple. Start asking questions, taking steps to be prepared. Interesting enough for you men, the the right woman is the the Christ-like woman. Uh, God says the best wife is the woman of character. The woman of character, not the charmer and not the natural beauty. Proverbs 31.30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is what? Thank you for saying that out loud. Say it all together. Charm is deceitful and beauty is? vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Stop looking merely external. She should be attractive to you, that's for sure. But the ultimate woman is the authentic woman of God. Marry an authentic woman of God, you're going to die happy. You will. Now, there's a tension of beauty. Uh, You know, uh, there's a sense that there needs to be attractiveness between a couple, and there, there should be that. Um, you know, at the same time, it's the heart that's the issue, the heart before the Lord. And that's the gal who loves Christ. Are you ready? Write it down, singles, more than you. You want someone who loves Christ more than you. That's a woman you can trust, and that's a woman you can respect, and that's a woman who will like her husband. So old women train younger women to like their husbands. Number two, maternally, she's to love her children. Maternally, next to loving her husband, the godly woman must love her kids, which is the most future mothers think is really easy. How can anybody not like kids? I mean, they're so entertaining. Um, I like little Tommy. Little Tommy uh, kept telling his teacher about the, the, the little baby brother that's going to be born in their home. He's all excited about it. Every week he's telling the teacher, oh, yeah, you know, little, my little baby brother's coming. And then at home, he's sitting on the couch with his mom, and the mom let little Tommy feel the baby moving in her womb. His eyes bugged out. His mouth dropped open. And then suddenly at school, he stopped telling his teacher about little Tommy, you know, his baby brother coming. Finally, the the teacher asked Tommy two weeks later, what happened to your yet-to-be-born brother? Tommy burst into tears, and he goes, I think Mommy ate it. Um, (laughs) Kids are fun. There are. And grandkids are even better. Couldn't wait. Now they're just a blast. Yet nothing could be more difficult than loving children. I mean, after all, all four kids wake up in a bad mood, eat all the cookies but one, only talk in a whine, only scream their questions, refuse to eat any meal without complaint, stick the remaining cookie in the CD player, break a window, torture the neighbor's cat, eat the house plants, write on the wall with a permanent Sharpie, and that's all before 10 a.m. Kids can be a challenge. And that's why Paul doesn't command wives here to love their children. He actually exhorts women to be trained by the older women to learn how to love their children. And the root word for love, again, is again, phileo, intentionally. Every 
word and scripture intentional, and this is a love for children that cares and likes and cherishes and enjoys them. And so because raising kids in the first century was a mother's duty by marriage arrangement, uh, children were often burdens and it made life busy and more mouths to feed. And so in Roman society, people often lacked natural affection and so much so that apart from the oldest daughter, uh, often if there was a weak deformed or the female offspring other than the firstborn, they were often killed rather than cared for. And so our circumstances are somewhat similar with the sin of abortion today in a society that which views the function of a mother as second best to a career and a mother's greatest potential influence is, is really in her career and not in her home, pushing kids off to daycare. And yet according to God's word, a full-time mother is the highest privilege and a mother's greatest potential influence for the kingdom. Take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, it should be there in your outline or in your Bible, obviously. Uh, a mother's importance is discussed here after discussing the design of women in public worship. Timothy makes this dramatic statement. Actually, Paul does to Timothy. He says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What Paul is saying is that one of a woman's greatest impact for the kingdom of God will be her influence on the lives of her children. He's saying you kind of overcome the stigma of the fall by actually raising the next godly generation. And that's why Paul tells Timothy motherhood would be her salvation. She'd be preserved. Um, She would be not saved in that sense of salvation, but her role to impact the kingdom from the bottom up would be through her children. Uh, Why is it that when we watch a football game and the camera zooms in on an almost 400-pound lineman and he sees that the camera's on him, what does he say? Hi. Yeah, hi, Mom. Because Mom shaped him through discipleship of an older godly woman, through the discipleship of other believers, mothers have an incredible impact in the lives of their children. It's important for you to understand that parenting is discipleship. There is no actual verb parenting in the New Testament. That great commandment in Matthew chapter 28 that is to be pursued by us till the end of the age, and we're not there yet, friends. And so therefore, discipleship, that intentional relationships for the purpose of growth, coming to Christ, becoming like Christ, that intentionality is to be what we're to pursue with our children. It's much greater than what we school them. It's how we invest into them, person to person. That's what God's calling us for here. And how do you know someone you're interested in uh, will be a great parent? Are they discipled? Uh, Do they disciple others now? Are they discipling? Because discipleship is parenting. Learn how to disciple others now. Learn that skill now as you get into parenting. Number three in your outline, the next goal of a woman is to be mentally sensible. Mentally sensible. That means God expects three things. One, to kind of be in your right mind. The word sensible means to be in your right mind. You're not one french fry short of a happy meal. Uh, Sensibility means she rarely panics or loses control of her emotions. And number three, sensibility means that you're exercising common sense. It means you're using your mind To make biblical decisions, basically to be sensible means you're a thinking woman. Thinking woman. 
the quality of sensibility is the most repeated quality in the entire book of Titus. It's the singular quality that's focused upon. In fact, you can find out why by turning to Titus chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Take a look at it. Titus 1, 12 to 14. Not only was the Christian community on Crete not living out their doctrine, but the entire Cretan society battled with living sensible. It says in Titus 1.12, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Wow. And Paul says, this testimony is true. Wow. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Cretans, always liars, meaning no self-control over their speech. Uh, Cretans, evil beasts, meaning they're, they're not exercising any self-control over their, you know, basically uh, their behavior. And then he says lazy gluttons, that literally means lazy bellies, they no control over their appetites. And they're paying attention to myths, which means they're tickling their ears with men's opinions instead of being spiritually directed by God and His Word. And so just like our society teaches that, you know, you got to look within, it can't be wrong because it feels so right, if you let it all loose tonight, just do it, think differently, try it, you'll like it, I'm loving it. Our culture doesn't lack, I mean, does lack a lot of sensibility as well. And that's why Paul makes sensibility the number one character quality when he writes Titus. And in this letter here, Paul reminds elders to be sensible, older men and older women implied there, younger men, younger women on Crete, all are to develop and exercise sensibility. It's absolutely essential. In fact, uh, amazingly, the sensible woman will learn to discipline her thinking over her feelings. And a great memory verse for all of us, including women, would be Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, when it says, Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. We're to be thinking about certain categories and not others. And if it's not true, not to be thinking about it. The sense of believer will also practice good stewardship with their money. Uh, budgeting, not abusing credit cards, controlling their spending, avoiding debt. What about singles? <clears throat> Sensible dating couples are careful what promises they make. Big violations with couples is the gifts they give, how much time they spend together, and the promises they make. Um, let's be practical. You don't talk marriage on the third date. You know, you don't give her a diamond ring just because she's nice. Uh, you don't knit him a motorcycle. I'm just kidding. Uh, you don't say, I love you, you know, unless you're ready to back it up. You don't, you don't spend more time together than a married couple with. Use your mind. Be sensible. Learn to live sensibly from older saints. Be accountable. Learn. Uh, it's a process. We're never going to arrive, but it's a process. Number four, morally, we're to be pure. In Titus, the word pure here literally means to be chaste or sexually pure. He's very specific here. For the first century wife, Christianity brought a lot of freedom, in which they did not have before. So a believing woman was no longer a slave in her own household. Uh, she was free to minister from house to house, but along with that freedom became the responsibility to remain pure. And that was a problem on Crete. It's a problem today. Don't misread purity, though, for the believer 
really often we think about externals when purity is actually accomplished first, not by what you don't do, by, by what your heart is like and where you're at in your focus. I want to give you three things that actually help cultivate purity, and that would be first, keep your heart focused on Christ. Purity actually starts with anticipation of His return. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, We shall see Him just as He is, and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So purity starts by remaining intimate with the pure one. When you're in His presence, that's what gives you the desire to be pure. When you're distant from Him is when you then desire to be impure. Secondly, purity is not first developed by keeping external rules, but purity actually begins by cultivating your inner heart and your inner mind, your inner person. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28, you know this. Uh, you've heard it said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. According to Christ, purity is an inner attitude that issues forth in a holy behavior. That's how it starts. It's internal. So the issue with purity is not how far you can go physically before you sin, but how intimate you are with Christ and how disciplined you are with your internal thoughts and desires. And God knew us so well. He wants us to stay close to Him. He wants us to make sure that we're working on our inner person. But then thirdly, because um, lust is such a devastating sin and one that we need to respond to in a dramatic way, He says purity is also maintained by sensible fleeing Fleeing. Look at 2 Timothy 2.22. It says, flee youthful lusts. And then 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. While strong young desires demand some running away, and a biblical response to intense drives is to get away. You get away physically. You don't just pray about it. You get out of that circumstance. You avoid that circumstance. Now, how do you do that? How do you flee? Let me give you some ideas. This is both for single and married, and that would be this. Uh, number one, you flee by preparing for situations, right? Uh, Joseph, uh, you know, like him, Potiphar's wife was continually pursuing him, so he knew that when it came down to it, he was going to have to run. Even though she grabbed his coat, he was going to have to run, and a believer is prepared to escape a tempting situation in advance. Uh, no one is above strong desire, so determine what you will do now, what you'll do now. Number two, flee by planning your environment. Uh, stay public, stay in the light, stay active, don't stay up late. Try not to be in a closed room with someone that is not your spouse. Uh, don't go to the beach if you're single to watch the submarine races at night, um, that kind of thing. It takes a while. Number three, <laughs> flee by picking your people. First uh, Corinthians fifteen thirty three is actually talking about doctrine, but it also has application to this, and that bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, you know, don't go out with a flirt. You say why not? Because the only people who flirt in the Bible are harlots. Uh, don't don't bind yourself to anybody who will corrupt your character or your purity. Don't do it. Number four, flee by pondering your appearance. Clothing choices make statements. Uh, they do. We communicate by what we wear. And what you're saying 
you need to ask that question. And what your potential message is received, you need to ask that question. And you need to ask older godly women about modesty, not a guy. Number five, flee pouncing on your thoughts. you got to go after your thinking. Uh, turning evil thoughts and concentrating on heavenly thoughts or healthy thoughts or biblical thoughts. Again, Philippians 4, whatever is true, what's right, what's lovely, what's pure, what's excellent, those things. And number six, flee by paralyzing your glances. And that would be like Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze the long look at a virgin? Uh, making a covenant with your eyes is not to take the long look at or look lustfully at anything. Don't take the second look. Turn away. Change the mental channel. So pursuing purity is to pursue Christ. It's to... Make sure that you're working first on the inner person. You know why? Uh, This is real basic. Someone who compromises externally, they fornicate, they commit adultery. There's been a lot of sin that went on in their head before that occurred. You all know that, right? So the battle is the internal person. That's what you have to go after so that it never gets to that behavior. And then, obviously, you need to make sure that you don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to compromise. Uh, Honestly, on most things in my own personal life, I'm not a legalist at all in this category. I'm I'm, kind of legalistic. I won't drive with the opposite sex that's not my wife. I I, I, I won't be in an office. And you say, Chris, why would you do that? Because 19 out of 20 guys that fail in ministry fail in this area. 19 out of 20. I'm just not going to do it. We got to make strong commitments to stay pure. Would you agree with that? We live in a very difficult day. Here's a, here's a tough one. Uh, number five, domestically, you're to be a worker at home. Domestically, a worker at home. Uh, the Bible's really clear. The Greek word, see it there in your text, Titus chapter 2. I'm just teaching the Bible here. Please don't throw anything at me. Worker at home. You know what it means? It comes from two words. And you know what the two words mean? To work at home. That's what it means. <clears throat> I'm just telling you, look at uh, 1 Timothy 5.14. It contains the same idea. Paul says, I want the younger widows to get married, to bear children, and keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Keep is a very strong word. It's despote in the original language. It means where we get our English word for despot. Uh, The wife, he's saying, is the warlord of the home. Wow. Wow. Now, God's truth is an offense to today's culture, and if you are in any way a feminist, I will be right now stepping on your air hose. The world pictures a worker at home as a less than best option, a confining potential, a boring and frustrating choice, a decision made only by the less intelligent. God pictures a worker at home as a woman's busiest and best priority where she fills out her commitment to be a godly wife and a mother. We're not talking about working or not working here. You have to wrestle with that. With all her new freedom, a born-again believer, the New Testament woman was not to go from house to house being a busybody or remaining a home being at lazy. She was to work when she was at home and do her work at home. And Paul's telling Titus, the young wife's goal was to make her home a place of contentment, intelligence, and peace. 
She's to manage the affairs of her household in such a way that her husband and children are blessed in countless ways. All you got to do is read Proverbs 31. I mean, it is laid out. Her work of housekeeping, picking up, cleaning, budgeting, hospitality, shopping, cooking, washing, investing, nursing, chauffeuring, helping the poor, caring for her family are viewed by God as spiritual ministry. Because she's a worker at home, keeping her home a place where Christ is honored and proclaimed. So you should know how to deal with money. You should know how to shop. You should know how to cook. You should know how to clean. Get ready now, if you're single, by cleaning your dorm room. Uh, organize your desk. Uh, don't, you know, tovu wabohu, you know, chaos. Uh, let, bring order out of chaos here. Uh, clean your car so you can see the floor mat. Arrange your trunk. Um, listen, the only time that you actually get to be acting like a princess is if you are one. Um, otherwise, as a Christian, the greatest among you will be your what? Servant. Servant. Now, as a single, understand you have a singular job description, and it's found the single woman is commanded in 1 Corinthians seven thirty-five to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. If you're single, drink it up. Drink up this time for his glory. Minister unhindered by family. Get an education. Work it in career by God's strength. But if you are not a celibate, prepare for marriage. Prepare for motherhood. Prepare to run a household. Get trained to be a worker at home. Number six, socially, she is to be kind. Kind. A godly young woman is not only Christ-like in character, but she pursues good deeds. Uh, it's that she's motivated by mercy and grace for her family, for the saints, and for the ain'ts, for everybody. Like Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, she's to be known for all the gifts that she's given away to the needy. She's kind to others. This was a major weakness on Crete. When you read Titus, um, six times... Paul exhorts Titus about good deeds. In three chapters, six times, be engaged in, be zealous for, be working and prof not prof professing to know God, but showing it. Uh, take a look at him really quickly. In 116, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. In 27, in all, your, uh, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. In 214, zealous for good deeds. And 3.5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds. 3.8, those who have believed may be careful to engage in good deeds. 3.14, let our people learn to engage in good deeds by, to meet pressing needs. Since our Lord is kind, he wants us to be kind as well. It should be one of the attributes that you are pursuing as a godly woman. Well, <clears throat> by example, I, the only way that I used to drink coffee. This is not true now, but for most of my life, um, I only would drink coffee if I could destroy the taste of it. Anybody with me on that? Just anything to destroy the taste. My wife, on the other hand, is a coffee snob, spiritually gifted, okay, coffee drinker. So here we are, Reddit Airport, it's 5 a.m., uh, we haven't slept all night, we're traveling overseas, and She's buying a cup of drugs, uh, so three or four brain cells will work. And a wiped-out stewardess who just pulled an all-nighter flight 
is ahead of her trying to buy her cup of Christian cocktail. And the barista says this, cash only. But the stewardess doesn't have a dime. She's all got a credit card. So my gift of giving bride immediately pays for her cup of liquid life because she's kind. It could be that she's also a fellow caffeine addict, but it, it could be kind. Young godly women, women in general, are to be kind, filled with good deeds, motivated by mercy and grace. That's what he means. Motivated by mercy and grace. We've been so given by what Christ has done for us in dying for us, in rising from the dead for us, in doing all that we could never do for ourselves, that somehow it should impact the way that we treat others. A kindness that we've received that we could never repay and don't deserve at all, that we now demonstrate that. So, actions that put Christ on display, kindness, strengthens marriage, parenting, and witnessing. Number seven in your outline, spiritually, she's to be subject to her husband, spiritually. Paul adds, so that the word of God would not be dishonored. The world uh, hears subject and shouts doormat. The word says no subjection, and that shouts dishonor. Understand, five times in the New Testament, women are to called to be subject to their own husbands, not to every man, to own husbands, and it's actually in the middle voice, which means she does this to herself. It's not something that her husband does, is that she does. She literally, the word being subject, is to rank yourself under, it's a military term, like a private does for his sergeant, not every man, her own husband, so that the word of God and the Lord's reputation is not injured or slandered or insulted. Now, how could he be insulted? Now, under, track with me here. Christ designed men and women. Christ created marriage. And in it, Christ designed authority and submission. Why? Not because of culture. Not because this is, you know, old-fashioned. Not primarily because of the created order, though that does figure in. But because it reflects, are you ready? His nature. The triune God consists of three equal persons, and yet each person is distinct. Amen? It's true. And after the incarnation, specifically, Christ submitted to the Father. And Paul, as he confronts women who are not functioning by God's design in Corinth, he begins by making this statement in 1 Corinthians 11.3. You've got to see it or write it down. 1 Corinthians 11.3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Yeah, got that. The man is the head of a woman. Wow, okay. And God is the head of Christ. Now, Christ is no less God than God the Father, correct? And God the Father is no less God than God the Son. They're equally God, and yet they function in uniqueness. And the Son submits to the Father. The reason this design was made was not because of culture and not because of oppression and none of that. It was because that's the way we show off the triune God. We're demonstrating His character. Marriage is made up of a man and a woman who are one. And there's an incredible oneness that must be pursued in marriage. And that's half the argument of Ephesians chapter 5. 
The other half of the argument is that in God's design, it reflects his character, so the wife submits to her husband. Just like the authority submission in the Godhead, so God's design for husbands and wives to reflect the Trinity. And again, it would be to say that it's insulting for a wife to submit to her husband is to say that it's insulting for Christ to submit to the Father. Because that's where the basis of it is. Submission does not mean that men are better (laughs) uh, or men are smarter. No way. I have a million stories to tell you that I know that I married someone smarter than me. I took, an exa- I took a class in Israel. My wife was there with me. I'm in seminary. I'm studying my brains out. I get a B. She studies nothing at all, gets an A. There's just this massive IQ. That doesn't mean that we're smarter. Uh, it's like a great play with two great actors, both equal but different parts. It's like a, a doubles tennis team, each with their side of the court to manage. It's like a pilot, a co-pilot, each with specific responsibilities. It's a team demonstrating the triune God. Listen, your kids or your grandkids aren't going to see the triune God unless they see it demonstrated in your relationships. God is the one who designed authority submission. Then for a wife not to put herself under the uh, husband's authority is to attack the very character and wisdom of God. That's what he means when he says not only the subject, but that it wouldn't bring shame to God's name. So when a woman submits herself, she's actively expressing trust in God and in her husband, and she's laying out this expectation that for him to fill out his role and to actually prime in the pump for him to be the leader that God meant him to be. Now, what about men? God's design is equally difficult. Both women need to die to self and both men need to die to self in order to make this work. Young men need to be responsible, and they need to reject passivity. They need to be leading courageously. And it's not do what I say. It's do what he says. This is Christian marriage we're talking about. So we're actually leading our homes into saying, let's do what Christ wants us to do. Let's pursue what he designed us to do. That's what we're supposed to be about. Uh, Young men are to live for God's approval, not man's. So both men and women must be born again. You've got to be filled with the Spirit. You've got to be walking according to the Scripture, denying self in order to live out God's design. Here's the point. You can't do this in your own strength. Can I hear an amen to that? That's the point. The point is we need to trust Him, trust His Word. I could, I, we probably in 41, almost 42 years of marriage, have maybe had four or five discussions on the roles of men and women. We just do it. We just pursue it, and we're one heart, one mind. Ladies, will you live by the word, or will you live by the world? Are you delighting in God's design or disliking God's design? Are you pursuing God's will or pursuing your will? You'll have to paddle against the riptide of this world in order to thrive by living by his word. Don't wait. The key here is discipleship, mentoring. I mean, it could be financial issues. It could be intimacy issues. It could be whatever you're struggling with as a couple. Guaranteed, that older godly couple is going to be an incredible influence in your life. If they know Christ and they know his word, they can have incredible influence and impact and help you. And that's what really Paul is laying out here for us, that this would be lived out, discussed, mentored, talked about, discipled in our midst. Don't wait. 
pursue that relationship with older godly women, plural. Guys, that older godly men at your church, get discipled, ask questions, practice skills. If you're a young single gal, get under that godly couple and learn from them. If you've had no basis to see this lived out in your own home, godliness in marriage does not magically occur when you say, I do. And really, it doesn't have to be a three-ring circus marriage, right? Are we in agreement? It doesn't have to be a three-ring circus. You know, it starts with the engagement ring, and then it goes to the wedding ring, and then it ends up with the suffering, right? It doesn't have to be that, right? God's design for you is, is designed for His glory. It's your good and your joy. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we would ask that... Uh, if there's anyone here who's battling with this, and maybe it would expose a heart that is just not able because it's not been born again and that they would need to cry out to Christ and recognize that that's why Jesus came. He came to provide salvation. He did the work on our behalf that we can't do. We could never earn it, never be good enough, but we can trust our lives to you and your work on the cross and that all of your wrath for our sin was poured out on your son took our place, rose from the dead, can give us a new life, and now cause us to be regenerate, not just justified, but born again. Pray that maybe one or two might turn to you today. For the rest of us, we know that we can't do this in our own strength, that we would depend upon your spirit. We would trust you. And Father, that in our day especially, that we would pursue your roles, your plan and your desire for us. Let our worship today be that we would pursue your word, talk about it, wrestle with it, argue over it in some way that your spirit would begin to change us and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ, which would bring you glory and truly mean that we worshiped you today. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for being here today.